We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing, Shahab Ahmad, what is Islam? We're at, uh, what page is that? Uh, 53. And this much said. Alright, who's reading? This much said, we can now turn to the most instructive element as regards to the problem, as regards the problematic at hand which are the stated terms in which figural pictorial art was conceived of by social groups that practice it. Thus we, have, thus we find that uh, Sadiqi Beg Afsar, 1533-1610, uh, the author of a treatise in Persian verse entitled The Canon of Figural Representation, Qanun al-Subar, and himself an acclaimed portrait painter, wrote in his autobiographical, autobiograph, autobiographical introduction to this poem about art. <clears throat> I take the chattels of my ambition to the alleyway of the figure. I aspire to meaning from the face of the figure. My heart, which had known the art of the figure, brought itself now to the high road of meaning. So far I have come in portraying the figure that I have traversed figure and arrived at meaning. Quite okay, so anybody oh. want to try to translate what he's saying? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I take the chattels of my ambition. <clears throat> to the alleyway of the figure, I aspired to meaning from the face of the figure. My heart, which had known the art of the figure, brought itself now to the high road of meaning. So have I, so far have I come in portraying the figure. So what are the two big uh, terms repeated over and over again? Figure. Figure and meaning. Figure and meaning. And so essentially what he's saying is that he's trying to get to the meaning of reality. And it starts with the figure. So basically, he's trying to get into the inward, but you have to start with the outward. Okay, continue. Quite simply, the statement of the author of the canon of figural representation, which stands in counterdistinction to the statement of the prescriptive, prescriptive canon of Hadith and its elaboration as law, is that engagement with figural art is an act of positive value. That in the crafting and contemplation of the image, the individual may traverse the material limitations of this worldly materi materiality and form and attain to the knowledge of pure, higher-worldly meaning. The governing concepts here are clearly those of the hierarchical cosmology of the philosophical Sufi amalgam outlined above, the parallel with the lines of Jami on real and metaphorical love quoted earlier is readily evident. The artist-author of these lines of poetry simply assumes as a human and historical fact that the philosophical Sufi amalgam in whose language he speaks is both understood by and is operational for his audience, which is the audience of both poetry and figural painting. The reason for his assumption is obvious. He and his audience share the same human and historical fact. The canon of figural representation speaks from and to within a norm that is held by Muslims that embraces Muslims, a norm where figural representation, far from being anathema, is truth. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about all this? So, so he's speaking not in defense of figural representation, he's, he's uh, speaking with the assumption that that's the norm. But then he's saying you use figural representation to get to meaning, to the inward. What do you think? He's saying figural representation is the norm. Yeah. Or the, um, meaning it's not something he's trying to show, you know, it's like a minority opinion or something like that. He's saying... This is norm, this is truth. But isn't, in our sort of tradition, the, uh, 
behavior is considered norm, you take that from like, from the. Huh? You threw me off. You take it from. You take it from the companions and the prophets, I saw, right? Mm hmm. And so, wouldn't, like, where would we see them practicing something mm -hmm. similar to figural representation? That's the exact question Shahabath was raising, right? That uh, we, have, we have the Hadith literature that it is proscribed, meaning forbidden, um, and yet not only is this person, this person isn't even defending it, he's speaking just about it. And that's the, that becomes the, the, the basic question. Another way to frame this is that, okay, if we, if we don't see the companions doing it, does it make it wrong? Mm. Right? And, and so, if it's a theolo generally speaking from within general Sunni thought, if it's a theological manner, matter, um, and then you add something, then that's an innovation. But you're going to have a million things that the companions didn't do, like, you know, use a telephone. And it could be that's the lens that they're going through, or this is just a completely different universe through which they're understanding Islam. So, Alright, continue. In case we might assume that the above text is somehow exceptional, the commonplaceness of the normative notion of figural art as a source of truth is readily evident in another more elaborate statement of art theory that appears in the foreword to the album of art assembled for the Delectation of Ottoman Sultan Ahmed I, which is preserved today in the Tukapki Suriyari Museum in Istanbul. The raiment and adornment of the finest decorated garments of word and picture, the pearl ornaments of eloquence and of art, those most chaste of discourses, and those most beautiful of images from behind the curtain of no doubt and from the place of no imperfection have been bestowed upon the virgin girls. Then by this beguiling beauty, the hearts of the worldly are stolen away, and the capacities of the discerning are enamored and confounded. Whereas the glowing mirror of the world forever is displaying figures depicted and images drawn, and is the object for contemplation by those possessed of insight for instruction, it may yet be rusted by the vicissitudes of time. In such infelicities, uh, felicitous, felicitous. In, in such infelicitous days, we turn to our predecessors of yore and of late to view images fitted for contemplation and to narrate accounts expressed for instruction. Okay, so one key point here is that uh, this, is, uh, this is made for the Sultan. So the Sultan Ahmed Mosque across the street from the Hagia Sophia, that's who we're talking about here. And, and so here we even have, you know, ideal figures and then a purpose of the figures, which is contemplation. All right, continue. In the disappearing and appearing of the revolving heavens and in the chameleonic varieties of types of images, such strange effects and marvelous forms present themselves, the imagining and imaging of which serves as an occasion for the acquisition of the capital of the science of philosophical wisdom and as means for perfecting the refinement of the moral detecting and drawing eye. It serves, moreover, certainly and assuredly, to quicken the profound thinking and to edify the illuminating conscience and enlightened heart of the auspicious person of the emperor of the zenith of ascending degrees. Wow. That's all. Yeah, that's, that's how you guys should start speaking to me, I think. You know, <laughs> you know the emperor of the zenith of ascending degrees. <laughs> okay, let's continue. 
The introduction to the Sultan's album is nothing less than an outright celebration of figural representation. Again, once he's arrayed here, the epistemological structures of philosophical religion, and not in a manner or in a discursive register that is seeking to argue for a philosophical or Sufi position, or to argue against a juridical, juridical one, but rather in a manner and register that forthrightly expresses the assumed and operational norms of the educated and self-consciously Muslim elite of the Balkans to Bengal complex. Okay, so so what is the what are the um, the uh, the structures he's talking about? Primarily, it's the idea that you have the inward and the outward, and so you have the outward, which is what the figural representation is containing or is depicting, and then you have the inward, which is what you are aspiring to. And, and so he's not even trying to argue against, um, you know, the, the, the textbook opinion on this. He's saying, you know, this is assumed as norm. And the analogy for that would be just the way we would speak about photography today, right? That we, we don't speak about photography. We rarely, rarely speak about photography in terms of trying to defend it Islamically. And we take it as a norm. And that's probably what's taking place here, right? in this era, that it's just commonplace, so they're not even trying to defend it, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, that's probably literally like how 500 years from now people will be looking at, at our culture, like look at all these images that they've done, you know. That on top will of they that, not yeah. have images then, though? Who knows? The clouds will be there. Sorry? <laughs> what? What? Nothing. Global warming down. Uh, the, should I continue? Yeah, might as well. <laughs> <laughs> the source of images in this world is the pure and high domain of no doubt and no imperfection, whence forms neoplatonically descend and impregnate with the meaning, with meaning the receptacle virgin girls of this material world. Okay, so anybody want to try to translate that sentence? I'm not jumping. Yeah, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Okay, so so in in Plato's outlook. There's the sense that, okay, there's the real world we live in, and then there's the perfect world, which is the, what we should aspire to. And so the language that's being used here is that the perfect world is the land of no doubt and no imperfection, okay? which is an interesting combination, meaning it's 100% clear reality and it's 100% perfect. Okay? And so, so this world... Which is the perfect world? The figural world? Yeah. Okay. Wait, wait. When you're saying figural, you mean like the drawings here? No, like what they represent. Yeah, the ideal world. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then this world is is the world of the virgin girls. Okay. So what does that mean? Those who are waiting to be impregnated with meaning. So the virgin girls are are. You know, I, li I like how these guys are all like looking down. Yeah, the, the virgin girls no, are essentially these these symbols of of purity and perfection and everything, uh, but do not yet have meaning inside. They're just surface. Just like a male artist. Uh, Wait, those are the are the like the the art that's made. I mean, like on their own, they have no meaning. So so essentially, there's the figure. Right. When we say figure, what do we mean? Drawing. Okay. Okay. So a drawing of a person. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, like the one right there. Yeah, that is perfection. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> mashallah. Okay. So, so when we're speaking about of the drawing, the drawing, you're aspiring to perfection in what you're drawing. 
but that's just the surface. Right, okay. That's okay. just the beauty. Uh, but then there's the question of how do you apply meaning to it. Um, when he quotes it, is, it, is that just like a so-called Virgin Girls, or is that like a quotation? I mean, these are all Quranic references, right? No doubt. Virgin that, Girls, the Hooties. Right, is that a metaphor, though? Is that like... Is that what the Quranic metaphor means, though? No, not necessarily. Right. I mean, so so that comes down to uh, are the are the um, depictions of paradise and hell literal or metaphorical? Mm-hmm. They're all definitely metaphorical, and the majority opinions that they're also literal, right? Um, but he is speaking of what one of the metaphors of this is. You know, the idea of womb comes up over and over again. So you're starting from your mother's womb. And then you enter the womb of this world, and then you go through a similar process, like your process of birth into this world, the process of death out of this world into the next world, is also described, you know, as like this squeezing experience. So you'll find that language also. So I'm saying the metaphor itself is not necessarily out of the ordinary in our history. Right. I'm I'm trying to understand why he used a heavenly metaphor for an earthly point. So, so think of uh, when the Quran is describing all those things that you're getting in paradise, or things that the Prophet peace on is describing that you're getting in paradise, palaces and gardens, and and then companionship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what are you really? What is it really attracting you, or what about it is attracting you? Um, with the palaces, it's a sense of ownership and dominion, right? Uh, with the virgin girls, it's the idea of companionship. With uh, you know the little boys running around serving you, it's luxury. So even there, um, you can assume some built-in metaphor. Right. And so here um, he's saying that okay, the virgin girl aspect is the is the earthly aspect of it, right? Okay. Speaking to our earthly mind. Okay. And here speaking primarily to a male earthly mind. Uh, but then, when you um, look at what is a person really seeking, you know, is it, is it just, you know, copulation? Or is it something different like companionship? Thus, everything that you see in the Quran, in terms of depictions of paradise, becomes a symbol of something that somebody is aspiring to. Okay. Right? So even think about it from the perspective that, you know, there's these rivers you know, of milk and pure water and honey and everything. And when you want it, the river just comes to you. So what sentiment is that addressing? Like you don't have to work, right? right? And you get all the luxuries, right? And so think about it from another perspective. You know, there was this one person who, who, who decades ago said that, all right, suppose, uh, suppose the Quran was revealed to your people. Uh, would gardens beneath which rivers flow be appealing? when you have 10 months of monsoon season? No, right? So it is speaking to a particular audience, which would be the, the Arabs of, of, you know, the 7th century. And it's still assumed that all those things are literal, right? Um, but we from a different century and different culture will find different things appealing for us. Make sense? Yeah. We, we make pictures of the forms of this world for the same reason, to attain by our imagining and imaging uh, the capital of the science of philosophical wisdom. 
and as means for perfecting the refinement of the moral detecting and drawing eye. Figural art is a means to attain the meanings of the zenith of ascending degrees. Okay, so, so what are we saying here? So, <clears throat> uh, there are different ways to try to, you know, attain or reach, you know, the, the higher reality. One can be reflection. One can be prayer. And so they're saying, so too is, you know, figural art, depictions of, of people and animals and stuff. They're saying that is also a means to attain higher, higher uh, realities. How? What do you think? Or think of any, you know, photo or painting or work of art. So yeah, I think we made the point before that like um, in Europe in the Middle Ages, the churches were made monstrously large. And then the second you walk in, because it's so huge, it automatically makes you feel compelled to, to, to you know, almost bow your head or to appreciate your smallness. And so think especially when we think of Christian art. Um, that, you know, certain colors like, uh, you know, European Christian art, Jesus is always white. And so that's creating an ideal, right? And so when we see, uh, Muslim paintings, I think we made the point before that when you see the prophet peace be upon him, often you won't see his face. What will you see around him? Fire. You see fire. What does that fire mean? What? It's like the light of guidance, right? And, and so, so the idea being that everything you see on a canvas, even though it's made to look like reality, every single thing is there, uh, chosen to be there by the painter, and thus everything is symbolic, everything has a purpose. And so, so think about this next time you look at a painting, uh, everything that is in the painting uh, was specifically chosen, and there's things that are excluded. And the point is to, to get you to, you know, reflect on a certain thing. Some paintings, a lot of times, the criticism of a lot of modern contemporary art is that it's all about destruction. Like, I think we had a conversation about, if you look at all these big movies that are coming out, so many of them are basically about the apocalypse or destruction, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be a statement about, you know, by the artists or the writers or the directors about just the condition of America, um, but then there will also be movies that are just, you know, getting you to aspire to, to higher things and more exciting things. That's what superhero movies are. Right? And so the point is that at the one level you're seeing just a story on the screen, but it is compelling aspirations inside of you. And that's what they're saying figural art should be doing. So a lot of our paintings are actually of, of paradise. There's many, many paintings of paradise throughout our, our history. Yeah. But let's continue. The contradiction between this norm and the other norm expressed on behalf of uh, juridi judicial uh, discourse by Al-Nawi on the basis of Hadith differs, uh, appears difficult to reconcile. The puzzle is even further complicated when we discover the reconciliation between the two positions that were stated by two eminent connoisseur contemporaries of the master painter Bezad of Herat. So heart-affecting is his depiction of the bird that like the bird of Jesus, it has become filled with the breath soul of life. By his mastery, the hair of his brush has given life soul to inanimate form. 
By these words, Bizad's critic unhesitatingly, unhesitatingly attribute to him a pneumatic power like to the power witnessed by the Qur'an as having been granted an apparent monopoly by God to Jesus. See above. Now, no such statement, whether read literally or metaphorically, could be made or understood without an awareness on the part of both the authors of these statements and of their audiences of those hadith that tell us not only that image makers cannot give life to the work of their hands, but that they will be eternally punished for presuming an undertaking similar to God's. In other words, Figaro painting here is being celebrated with reference to the very same scriptural text that legal discourse takes as the criteria for its proscription. Okay, so anybody want to translate what's going on here? Especially with this, uh, this passage about Jesus, peace be upon him. So basically, this guy's painting is so... Um, it's so, yeah, it's so amazing and it's so, like, affecting that it's, it's, uh, it's similar to what Isa al-Islam did when he actually, in literal reality, he took an inanimate. Okay. Uh, There's um, one key point in there. Sounds, yeah. I don't know if this is right, but it sounds like people are doing it to celebrate that attribute of God, mm -hmm. even though, like, that's, like, celebrating that is to not try and do it. Mm -hmm. So, so when they're drawing figural works, they're saying, I cannot give life to this, right? In the same way Jesus himself, peace be upon him, could not give life to, to the dead or to, to the, the bird. Yeah. Meaning, the greatness, uh, you are celebrating the greatness of Allah by drawing something, and what are you doing? At one level, you're imitating something that Allah has created. But you're not in any way claiming to be able to give life to this thing. Only Allah Ta'ala has that power. Okay. So then looking at it from that perspective, does it seem more palatable? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, it becomes different that way. Yeah. Okay, continue. But these words... Oh, I know. Bizad's painting? Yeah, Bizad's painting is thus... Hold on. Bizad's painting is thus assigned positive value and larger meaning by, the, by invocation of the language of prophetic revelation. If we are ignorant of Qur'an and Hadith, we cannot grasp the terms of reference and value and meaning in which Bizad's audience appreciated him. Here it would appear that the self-same language of the text of Muhammadan Revelation is read in two hermen hermen hermeneutical. hermeneutical trajectories that are so divergent as to produce two contrary values. One tra trajectory that reads the text to categorically prohibit the image, another that reads the text to celebrate the image. Mm -hmm. Each respective reading invokes the same body of text, but inverts the value produced by the other reading, one transforming the negative value of prohibition into the positive value of celebration, and the other vice versa. How are both of these Islamic? Dun, dun, dun. You look like you're about to say something. Mm, no, I don't know why, but it popped in my head when you talk about, like, someone's, there's a difference between someone saying, like, oh, I just struggle with making a prayer versus someone who's like, you don't have to make a prayer. <laughs> I just like can't tell when you're like getting into those weeds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other thoughts? The first two lines are much shorter than the translation. All right. That's what I noticed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. What was the fifth, fifth question? That was like, how was the art aesthetic, right? Yeah, the fifth question is the art question. Meaning figural representation. Oh, yeah. So. So yeah, one key point here is that all right at one level. <coughs> You have this whole history of, of figural de depictions 
that are looked at as norm, not, you know, someone who's at the edge. And then on top of that, the, uh, it's not even a defense of it to say that we're quoting these particular passages. They're saying these are the passages that are motivating us. So when it says that uh, the, uh, you know, when the prophet Pison is reported to have, have condemned, you know, or, you know, he's saying basically on the day of judgment, Allah is going to demand the image makers to put life into their images. They're saying that's a celebration of the greatness of Allah. We can't put life into these things. You know? and, and thus, um, you know, uh, that is, so they're quoting the exact same hadith that one population is saying this is prohibited and the other population is saying no, you know, celebrate. All right. Uh, Saji, did you find what were the, uh, all the previous questions? What was the first question? <laughs> okay, while you're looking for that, why don't you find all, all of our questions and then let's get into question number six. Six? You want me to like... Yeah, to remind us, yeah. Sixth and finally, there is a question with which we begin this book, that of wine. The consumption of wine made from grapes is prohibited by all schools of Islamic law, which forbid the consumption of intoxicating liquids on the basis of the verse of the Quran, wine, and games of chance, and stone idols, and divining arrows are an abomination from the works of Satan. Shun it that you might do good works. Further specified by the axiomatic hadith of the Prophet, that of which a large amount intoxicates, a small amount is forbidden. Earlier in their history, the Hanafi school of law allowed the consumption of some spirits made from sources other than grape in amounts that fall short of intoxicating the drinker. Although by the 6th, 13th century, the majority position of that school also became that of blanket prohibition. The prohibition of wine, as one scholar straight straightforwardly puts it, is one of the most instinctive marks of the Muslim world. It, its consequences can hardly be overrated. Okay, so, so we had that story of, of the guy, the scholar, who's drinking wine at the beginning. And one point to think about, uh, when the Quran is banning alcohol, it's not banning alcohol. It's banning uh, intoxicants made from grapes. Khamar, at that time, was uh, you know, essentially grape wine. And so then, why would we say beer is forbidden, or everything else, by analogy? Because then one of the prohibitions is that you should, you know, don't, um, don't come drunk to prayer, you know. And so what's interpreted from that is that, all right, if this is something that is affecting your thinking, then it is forbidden. And so then by extension, you know, uh, all the other types of alcohol are, are prohibited as well as all the different drugs. Uh, see the point that I'm making? The actual text is not prohibiting alcohol, the actual text is prohibiting grape wine. But what do you think about this point? That uh, early Hanafi school allowed some consumption of spirits made from things other than grapes. But non stinking man, I wish I was there at that time. Yeah. That's also with the thing that they don't intoxicate, right? Once that happens, they prohibit it too. Mm -hmm. so, so basically the point being that uh, as long as it doesn't intoxicate. So at that era, you know, you wouldn't have as much of the issue of what if I'm, you know, using red wine or whatever, cooking uh, alcohol, whatever that is, right? But, yeah, now it's completely banned. Okay. <laughs> hey, so, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. You got a firmware update. Yeah, a firmware update, yeah. However, an equally distinctive mark of the history of Muslims has been a widely held and constantly reiterated alternative evaluation of wine and non-legal discourses, where wine and the consumption thereof are invested with a positive meaning 
expressive of higher, indeed rarefied value. And this positive meaning has been enacted in society both in literary reiteration and in the physical consumption of wine in social settings. Oh yeah, I forgot to address the point at the end of the, the previous paragraph. The prohibition of wine, as one scholar straightforwardly put it, is one of the distinctive marks of the Muslim world. Its consequences can hardly be overrated. I mean, that is one of the things that is part of our reputation, mm -hmm. right? Regardless of how much people follow it in any societies, it's a different issue. But that is definitely uh, one of the stereotypes of, of Islam and Muslims in general, that you don't drink. And so think about what that affects. It affects who you'll be social with or whom you'll be social with. It'll, it'll affect whom you party with, whom you eat with. Um, and it also creates this wedge between, for example, the role of, of these, these drinks in Catholicism, the history of Catholicism versus us. Right? So it even has theological consequences. Okay, and now I'm sorry, continue. And so then the point here that, of the part that you just read is that he's making the same point just like with art, that there's all these passages, not legal-oriented passages, uh, that are celebrating wine uh, as opposed to uh, condemning it. Thus, in a foundational work of medical literature, The Welfare of Bodies and Souls, Kitab Masali al Abdan wa al Anfus of Abu Zayd al Balqi, we find the author stating The best drink that humans, through their reason and understanding, have devised a means of producing is the refined grape drink, among whose properties is that it intoxicates. Yeah. Uh, it is of all beverages the most noble in essence, most superior in composition, and most beneficial if taken in moderation and not to excess. Uh -huh. What do you think? Wait, so is this from the time where it was more, I guess, diversity in opinion about that? Um, possibly, but it looks as though he's speaking in the context of medicine. He's also speaking right. of grape wine, so... I wonder that too, like was always, CBD yeah. oil and people with epilepsy and things like that. I'm sorry, say it again. I, I like wonder about that with things like CBD oil and, and all that with like children with epilepsy and things like that. Well, I don't like, know. I don't know what CBD oil. It's. It's. Somehow they are like messing with marijuana in the sense that it doesn't have all of the like same properties, mm -hmm. um, but they found it to be like helpful, like. Mm -hmm scientifically proven where um, a lot of other things weren't, but because it's banned, um, and they recently banned that, a lot of parents who were depending on that, it was like the only thing that would keep their oh, wow. epileptic children from uh -huh. having these seizures, they, they can't access it anymore. Mm. Oh, wow. But like, it just makes me think of that, like, okay, if I had a, a child who was dealing with that, then like, do these things take on a different meaning? Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, when we apply things uh, through the lens of medication, then the rules do change, right? And so, yeah, here he's speaking about something that is categorically haram, and he's saying that this is the most beneficial, perfect of all beverages, um, and but as medicine. Okay. Abu Zayd is of course speaking of grape wine. The benefit of a substance to the body lies in what the substance provides by the body by way of health and strength, whereas its benefit to the soul lies in what the substance provides to the soul by way of happiness and animation. For these two things, I mean, health and happiness are the end to which all people strive in this world. They are not found together in any food or drink save for this particular drink. <laughs> <laughs> is that interesting? Yes, I mean, even Allah says that there's benefit. In in Hamar, right? But the sin outweighs the benefit. 
It is benefit to the soul that it it's benefit to the soul is that the happiness and animation it provides the soul. This is something unique to it among all food and drinks. For none of these have in them anything of which the pleasure is transported from the body to the soul producing therein, as does this drink. An abundance of happiness, animation, openness, stimulation, self contentment, generosity, and freedom from cares and sorrows. So how would how would he be how, how would he be figuring this out that you know it goes straight to the soul and it is so beneficial? What would be a possible way? So I mean, so one is that okay, I've tried it and this is what it does this, to me. This reads like somebody who's tried it and then fell in love with it. Yeah, it would be. So if this is one of the the promises of paradise, then there's something inside of us that seeks whatever this offers, and that's probably the logic that he's using. So all those things that are promised in paradise, right? They, like we just said a moment ago, they're appealing at a metaphorical level to something inside. And so there, you know, you'll be, you'll have this drink in a way that doesn't intoxicate. And so it is some sort of source of internal pleasure. But my question about this description is clearly it seems a lot of these um, feelings or states come from that very intoxication. Like, you know, uh, freedom from cares and sorrows, stuff like that. So like... I don't get how he's making that connection. Where we're told very explicitly in the Quran, like the intoxication is the bad part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think he he might even speak of the intoxication as um, you know the um, the unfortunate consequence, right? So if it was possible to have the and exact same the drink, intent- not the intentional one. Well, all we want is freedom from like cares and sorrows. Mm-hmm. So. No, I get that. I get that point. Like we, that's a good thing, right? Can I join the book group? Yeah, sure, sure. Just pull up a chair. True. So, so what we're saying here is that if it is possible uh, to have a version of that that didn't intoxicate you, it would be the best thing on earth. I again, I get. I think I get that point, right? There isn't yeah. a version. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, Adnan, even Adnan has this look of question. There is a version of that. Is there? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, for hey, me... Arya, move this way. Like, just, like, in terms of the thought of it, it's not connecting. Because, like, just to set it up, like, I, is it... Expl- aren't we sort of explicitly told that the intoxication is bad? Yes. And, and maybe this is where I'm kind of, like, uh, overreaching here. But like these very these half of these things he's talking about, I feel like they come from intoxication. Yeah, and he's saying that they uh, these things aren't coming from the intoxication. Well, but, read the read the next paragraph. Okay, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess I've never drank so I Among it, it's very yeah. much. I just, I just want to put that in there. I've never drunk in, so <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not aware. Yeah, continue. Just like clearly, the author has not had to deal with addicts. <laughs> <laughs> Among its virtues is that it acts to produce a marvelous effect within the capacities of the soul by bringing forth from it that which was not seen to be present in it prior to drinking, such as the capacities for courage and magnanimity. Mag- 
Magnanimity. Magnanimity, there we go. Which are known to be the noblest of human capacities. This, even if these things were lacking in a person before. Thus wine gives courage to the coward and makes generous the miser. It also increases that which is already present in a person, such as the capacities for understanding, memory, intellect, eloquence, and sharpness of thought. So, sharpness of thought. Okay, you're not going to get that They're from being drunk. They're drinking a different kind of wine. <laughs> I'm just saying, what kind of... Keep going. Going. It's Muslim wine. They hook around on the wine glass. For it is known that these virtues increase in a person when he has reached the midway state of drinking, before he is overcome by any perception. So before you get intoxicated, you have all these things. Okay. And, and so, so... So like half of your life, it's like, I don't so, know. It depends on your talent also. So, so, man. So anyway, so, so the basic point being that he is saying, okay, if we were to isolate you know, all the different chemical properties of red wine. He is saying the intoxication is one of them, but these things are actually separate from the intoxication. Interesting. Yeah, it's very, very Why fascinating. Why is he saying this? I don't know if Why I agree with that. Why is he stirring the pot in this manner? Well, I mean, think of this as one, one of many, many thousands of books throughout history, okay. right? And again, this is in the context of a book on, of medicine, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, continue. It's my kind of doctor. Oh, here we go. Further among its virtues is, is that it is a thing that creates a cause for friends to come together around it in conversation and close company. It is known that, a, that society is made pleasurable by listening or by conversing, and that it is by listening and conversing that companionship and happiness flourish in social gatherings, and that nothing makes listening and conversing so agreeable and pleasurable as partaking in wine. It is wine that provides excellence to society and conversation, and there is nothing that makes possible relations of intimacy and confidence between friends so tastefully and pleasantly and effectively as does drinking wine together. In this way, one finds that the person dearest to anyone from whom all his associates and his boon companion is his boon companion who drinks with him. Fascinating passage, huh? It's, I mean, it's very true of like larger society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, continue. Medicine was conceived of in pre-modern societies of Muslims as a register of hikmah, or universal wisdom, as a truth. Medical science is truth at which humans arrive, not the, through the prophetically revealed text, but through the exercise of rational observation and experimentation. Most physicians and natural scientists were thus also philosophers, and its validity is demonstrated in its curative power to provide welfare for bodies and souls. Abu Zayd al-Balqi's evaluation of wine is a truth claim made by someone practic practicing the epistemology of what the philosopher-physician Ibn Sina, in his great law of medicine, Al-Qanun fi al-Tib, called the real sciences, wherein it is established that knowledge of a thing is obtained only through knowledge of its causes and original principles. If such are available, and if they are not, then knowledge of it is only affected by way of coming to know its accidental and self-necessary properties. Okay, so this is, this is a, a, a point of Aristotle. So everything has an essence and then accident. So, so think about what is the essence of a phone. It's your ability to communicate with someone else. And then secondary qualities would be all the apps and stuff. Although, I mean, now people joke that the phone is an app um, on, on, my, yeah. on my device. But the point is that everything has a primary attribute that if you remove that attribute, you no longer have that thing. That is the essence. And then everything has all kinds of secondary attributes, which might be the color, the shape, and all those things. And so he's saying uh, the primary attribute of medicine 
is, or the, uh, when you're figuring things out, you're figuring things out either according to the primary attributes or those secondary attributes, which are called accidentals. Okay. And so medicine is a science starting by way of this whole philosophical outlook. And what is the primary attribute of medicine? It is cure. Okay. And then secondary will be what techniques are used. Okay. okay. Having enumerated the accidental and self-necessary properties of wine precisely on the basis of scientific observation, Abu Zayd al-Balqi, who incidentally also authored several works on the Quran, Isn't that fascinating? then pronounces the universal principle that in his evaluation and diagnosis governs wine. The general rule that applies in regard to everything that is of, that is both of great value and of great danger, uh, that it be taken in moderation. Abu uh, Zayd is a value judgment or hukam on wine. He uses the same term, hukam, as is used for a legal judgment or valorization, and which derives from the same verbal root as does hikmah, hikmah. The same, the same term, Hakim, designates both a physician and a philosopher, as well as a prescription for the social use of wine that is founded on criteria for truth that arrives at conclusions of truth quite different to the hukam of legal discourse that states that of which a large amount intoxicates, a small amount is forbidden. And far from being alone in his evaluation of wine in terms of autonomy, in terms autonomous of those of legal discourse, Abu Zaid is highly representative of the medical discourse. Mm -hmm. So look at that. So you know the point. Uh, your question being the, you know, why is he uh, saying this? Why is he stirring the pot? Um, here, Shab Ahmed saying what he's saying here is highly representative. That's a common stance. Mm -hmm. Again, in the in the realm of medicine. An evaluation of the benefits and harms of wine issued in terms of in terms independent of those of legal discourse is, for example, also pre presented at length in what would become the foundational Persian language medical texts, the Zafira i Khawarazmshahi yeah. by Sayyid Ismail bin, uh, or bin Hassan Jurjani. Mm. Abu Zaid was also evidently a value judgment that was shared by the physician philosopher Ibn Sina, who, when apparently not engaged in the problem of defining God, routinely drank wine in good company. As Ibn Sina's student... Abu Ubaid al-Juzjani reports in his biography of his great teacher, Every night pupils would gather at his house, while by turns I would read from the Shifa, and someone would read from the Qanun. When we were done, various types of singers would appear. A drinking party, Majlis al-Sharab, wow, was prepared along with its uh, appurtenances, and we would partake of it. So what do you think about this? This is literally good. the Jesuit house here at Loyal's campus. Yeah. <laughs> All the underage students. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So, so, and then Ibn Sina is that person who early on was, was categorized as writing all this heresy, yet his books, uh, his logical, logic books he became... He's the heretic. He's the heretic, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, from the, from the earlier question, yeah. And so, so, he, so this is, I think, clearly not metaphor, right? We would partake of drinking, singers would appear, the whole nine yards, so. It reminds me of um, the Socratic dialogue for all of them, where they would just drink and talk. Right? I, don't remember, I don't remember which one that is. Yeah. Uh, it was the one about love. I don't remember. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is worth noting, by, by the by, that the works studied prior to these nightly wine drinking sessions, namely Ibn Sina Shifar and his Qanun, 
would become the most influential books respectively of physics and metaphysics and of medicine in the subsequent centuries of the history of societies of Muslims. The positive valorization of wine is, of course, universally evident in the history of the poetical discourses of Muslim societies that is in the form of speech regarded as the highest register of human self-expression and social communication, where wine served as the preeminent and pivotal image for the deepest experience of the meaning of human existence in relation to the divine. Why? Um, oh, first, what is uh, why would uh, what does wine represent in in poetry? Love. So uh, not just love, but intoxication. So that you are so immersed in in the divine that you lose your sense of self. Right, and so that's uh, you'll find wine all over, you know, uh, this type of poetry. And it's also interesting in saying that this type of speech was regarded as the highest register of human self-expression. Um, and social communication. Think it is today, or what would be today? I'm having trouble with the word highest, but I think, like, just myself and all my non-Muslim friends, it's very difficult to maintain any social relationship because they just cannot engage socially and emotionally without this present. Wait, you're without what present? Without, like, some form of drinking. Okay. It's the only way they can engage in any type of emotional or social connection. And so, so what do you think, um, having said that, then what do you think about his, uh, uh, the, the highest here is not talking about drinking, the highest here is talking about uh, poetry. So uh, what do you think, uh, is there in contemporary culture a higher, <laughs> or like a more, a more respected uh, um, form of self-expression? Maybe movies, right? Yeah. Okay, continue. When seeking? When seeking to make the sense of the contradictory valorization of wine in literary and legal discourses, respectively, the tendency on the part of modern analysts is to insist on understanding the image of wine in the literary discourse of the Islamic world purely in, meta in purely metaphorical terms. Unaccountably, this tendency ignores the widespread practice of grape wine drinking as a persistent and standard feature in the history of societies of Muslims, as mentioned of, above by al-Balqi. And as practiced by Ibn Sina and his students, in which the ideal setting for wine was in a gathering of friends with the accompaniment of poetry and music. The consumption of grape wine took place in social gatherings unembarrassedly and frankly designated in the various languages of Islamic civilization as drinking assemblies Arabic, Majlis al Shara, Persian, Majlis e Shara, Turkish, Bade, Lisi, and in which uh, partakers were certainly not. All drinking on doctor's orders. <laughs> it just nice. sounds like, like the elite of Pakistan. Like, mm -hmm. all my friends who just moved here from Pakistan, this is like... Yeah, it sounds like them, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, one point to, to, to get back to is that he, he's talking about what Muslims in mass populations have been doing, um, as opposed to what will get you salvation. So, so uh, Sahab Ahmad is not claiming that this is going to get you salvation. Um, but the person who is saying it is a person who is highly regarded, right? Who's even authored um, books in the Quran. Yeah. And so these are the big question marks. So is he saying if you're if you're drinking not in a big gathering, then it that would it would be embarrassing? No. These are people drinking in big gatherings. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. Continue. Given the fact that Muslims did not merely spot poetry about wine, but consumed wine and poetry together in the same social gatherings as a part of the same body and soul-nourishing repast, 
It is hardly reasonable to wish the wine poetry away as mere symbolism divorced from material reality. Mm -hmm. Wine drinking was a collective and normative group practice, which is to say it was practiced in often large social gatherings of friends and peers, neither furtively and secretly on the one hand, nor in the common and general public on the other. It is hardly reasonable then to conceive of its practitioners to have considered it a categorical and unmitigated violation of the divine truth of God in acknowledgement of whose existence they lived. Quranically prohibited wine was not only the most rarefied metaphorical drink of Muslims, it was also the most rarefied social drink of Muslims. Is this conceivably Islamic? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Um, how much time do we have? Oh, we got about a minute. Uh, 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 Saadi, did you pull out all the questions? All right, let's hear them. So the first one is about like, philosophy. How is the, how those diverted philosophies Islamic? Yeah. The second one was about the super tradition. How was like free um not being bound by the Sharia? How was that how was that Islamic? Yeah. Third one is um the philosophy of illumination and the unity of existence, mm -hmm. um which were really pervasive. How are those Islamic? Mm -hmm. uh, fourth one was um the Divan of Hafiz, um and all its like interesting themes and stuff. Mm -hmm. How is that Islamic? Well, fifth one was about Islamic art, which um often breaks the rules we commonly think about art. Mm -hmm. Um, how is that Islamic? And the last one is about drinking wine. How is that Islamic? Okay. So let's stop right here. Anybody have any last questions or comments or anything? Okay. Uh, we'll continue, inshallah, next time. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka natu ilaik wa akhir da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.